Hello and welcome to this week's edition of SBC This Week, a roundup of news and views from around the Southern Baptist Convention. SBC This Week is hosted by Amy Whitfield and Jonathan Howe. Hey Jonathan, how's it going? Amy, I'm, I'm feeling a little bit better than last week, but you know, I'm still uh, still a bit of a pony. Um, What does that mean? Uh, I'm a little horse. That's not funny. It is funny. People are laughing on the other side. Trust me. It's n- it's not funny. Even by dad joke standards, it's not funny. You are not so. funny. <laughs> so. Well, I'm glad you're feeling better and you're not as hoarse as you were last week. Yes. Last week but, was yeah. bad. It was bad. Yeah. So yeah. I tried to let you talk as much as possible last week, and which is kind of like every other week. But oh. uh, people, people want to hear you more than want to hear me. Let's just put it that way. Okay. okay. That wasn't like a slam. No, at me. it wasn't a slam. Okay. It was just like okay. you're the more interesting one on the podcast than I am. I'm just the guy that kicks okay. the the ball to you to to hit. I tee it up for you, and you you do the all right. You do the heavy lifting here. Fair enough. So, all right. Hey, speaking of heavy lifting, not a whole lot of news this week, but there's some yeah. big news. It's a big, like big weighty news. news. Yeah. So big news week, but not in quantity. Not tons and tons of stories. Yes. Which is not bad. We'll always take that. Yes. Exactly. And also, we have a great interview this week with David Roach. He joined the yeah. show talk about racial reconciliation in the SBC. He's got a new book out on that and uh, talking about some of the moments. And it includes New Orleans, which we will talk a lot about on this episode. And one of the big events in New Orleans, Fred Luter being elected president in 2012 in New Orleans. And uh, we'll, we'll get to the information on that and you'll see why that's so important just a little bit later in the show. But first, we do want to thank our sponsor each and every week here on the podcast, Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Preparation for the broadest range of ministry is what you can expect and what you will get when you complete a Master of Divinity degree at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. With a wide array of academic options, Southwestern Seminary offers MDiv studies with concentrations in educational ministry, women's studies, international church planning, and much more. So whether you call the student ministry, cross-cultural missions, pastoral ministry, chaplaincy, or anything in between, the MDiv from Southwestern Seminary will equip you to live your calling. You can explore all the options available within the Southwestern Seminary MDiv at swbts.edu slash mdiv. That's swbts.edu slash mdiv. All right, Amy, on to the big news this week. The SBC Executive Committee has called a special meeting for next week with the purpose of moving the 2023 SBC Annual Meeting from Charlotte to New Orleans. You're breaking my heart, I know I'm breaking your heart, but what I'm doing to your heart, I'm going to Make up for to your belly. How about that? I mean, it's like everyone was going to come to North Carolina and we love, we wanted to host everybody very excited about it. Um, But instead we're going to go to New Orleans and you're right. There is a some consolation and that is amazing food. Yes. Amazing food. I can't, I mean, I can't deny that North Carolina is amazing. James Taylor wrote a whole song about it, but we don't really have the food that Louisiana does. Yeah, in in so, your mind, you can go to Carolina, but in your stomach, you're going to go to New Orleans. Yes, mo- most definitely. So, yeah, so that uh, the relocation will be happening in 2023. But this really came down to space because of the growing engagement yeah. in the annual meeting. It, it's a math thing, really. I know you don't like math, but this is an easy one. Charlotte, North Carolina, their convention center has 280,000 square foot of usable space for the annual meeting. We need 400,000 square feet. So yeah, that's, what that's can a problem. You do? 
We've been looking for an alternate location for this for the last couple of months, trying to find something. We finally were able to work out a deal in New Orleans. It was the only city in the Southeast that had the space we need on the dates we need with the hotels we need. So it just it just happened to be New Orleans. And unfortunately for Charlotte, we just don't fit anymore, which bad for Charlotte, but good for the SBC because we've got more yeah. people engaging in our annual meeting. It's all because of the podcast, by the way. Oh, sure. Yeah, you take credit for that. So uh, a couple of couple of things. One thing that I, I did know several people asked about is Charlotte has hosted yeah. very large conventions. But one of the factors in that is a lot of those conventions use the arena in Charlotte, which is not available yeah. during the time that we need it. It will be under construction. So that's something important to remember. Um, the other thing uh, to keep in mind as well is that, you know, this is you can't, we don't have a cutoff. This isn't like a conference where you say, we're only going to sell this many tickets. We have to, we have to provide for messengers to come. They have a right to come. And so if the numbers go up, then we've got to make space uh, for that. And so the constitution allows that, you know, if the city can't meet the requirements to host, then that's when the executive committee you know, can change yeah, the time. Basically has to step in so. and, and make it happen. Right. So right. Uh, it's super unfortunate because like you said, Charlotte, great city, great location for Southern Baptist, but the convention center just isn't on par with that of other major cities. Even like here in Nashville, uh, we have 400,000 plus square feet here in Nashville. This year in Anaheim, for instance, we're using 500,000 square feet for what we're doing in Anaheim. And next year in New Orleans, we will have 500 plus thousand square feet. I think it's like 520,000 square feet available to us next year. And when you start yeah. looking at the numbers that we need, and I broke it down into a, a Baptist press first person this week, we, we need a lot of space and Charlotte just doesn't have it for us, but it's really, it's not their fault. It just is a matter of over the past five years, we've seen a, a dramatic increase in engagement with churches and messengers for the annual meeting. When Charlotte was originally approved in 2016, and St. Louis, we were averaging the five years previously, we had averaged 5,700 messengers per year and only 2,400 churches really engaged in the annual meeting. Now that church number has gone up to 3,600 plus. So 50% increase right there in the number of churches involved over the past five years and 9,100, almost 9,200 average messengers. Charlotte could host 8,000 max about, uh, it's about 8,000 is what we could host in Charlotte. We've been averaging more than a thousand, more than that. So, I mean, whenever you start thinking about, and it's not just 8,000 chairs. So 8,000 messengers, you probably put out about 10,000 chairs. Okay. Cause you don't yeah. want like everybody on top of one another. We had that last year, a little bit in the end, in the uh, Nashville music city center. And it was, we were on top of one another in there, but you know, for, for 9,000, you need about 11,000, 12,000 seats because that's just the average. I think we'll have more because I, I North Carolina, they are really involved South Carolina right there too. I mean, there were going to be a lot of people next year, probably 10 to 12 on the, I mean, like we would not have 8,000. We'd blow past that. Right. No problem. We were going to have 10 to 12 at least next year, maybe upwards of 14. And you just don't have anywhere to put them. And we can't safely host people in a room that's too small for them. So right. we just didn't have any options. Uh, so to New Orleans, we go uh, likely this week, the UC will meet and finalize that this week. And um, there's, a lot of moving pieces, but it's good that we have it done now and everybody can kind of prepare. There's no flights been booked, no hotels been reserved. So, you know, for most part, messengers won't know any difference. It's just we'll we'll go to New Orleans next year instead of Charlotte. That's right. 
and have crawfish and beignets. Oh, so yes, we will. You better believe it. So there I'm looking go. forward to that. Uh, you know, being a Louisiana native, I am. I do enjoy the food. So it's a uh, it's good stuff down there. And uh, I, I really am sorry about Charlotte. Uh, I know Todd Unzicker and our friends in North Carolina are really bummed about that. But I also know that our friends over in New Orleans, Jamie Dew, Steve Horn, uh, all of our friends that listen to us down at New Orleans. Wonderful, wonderful oh, host. They're pumped and yep. they're, they're yes. excited about it. So yep. congratulations to them. And Amy, we also have some more news from New Orleans this week involving Fred Luter, who we mentioned earlier. They've named the Student Center after him and have announced a $12 million campus improvement program. Yeah, this is really exciting. So the board of trustees, when they met, uh, last week or a couple weeks ago, I guess, 10 days ago, they voted to rename the student center in honor of Fred Luter. And then they will also uh, name the cafeteria in memory of Landrum Level. So the Level family, obviously, very long connection there and history at New Orleans. Um, the, and the huge renovation. So tons of stuff. There's already been a lot of interior renovations. I got to see those uh, when I was there a couple of months ago, just visiting for the weekend. That's the weekend that we found out we had COVID. Don't think we gave it to anyone there, but uh, we did learn while sure, we were there. And, sure. Patient uh, zero. And, that's right. And then had to head home, um, had to get in the the rental car and drive our way back. But uh, but before we had to leave, we did get to see it and it's incredible. It's just beautiful. There's a um, Nam has a, you know, center in there and, uh, just lots of great, great stuff. Uh, but there's also going to be a huge update to the cafeteria. It'll include a 4,000 square foot addition, new meeting rooms, new bathrooms, an elevator, a mezzanine, all of these things. Construction is going to begin in May. So it's going to start, you know, right now. Um, but man, it is wonderful, uh, to see, this done in honor of Fred Luter. I am a huge fan among the general SBC population. I may be his biggest fan. So, yeah, so pretty excited. Elizabeth Luter aside. Yeah, of course. But just general population, man, I love, I love Fred Luter and think this is very deserved. Um, but we've got the story there in the show notes. It gives more details about the student center and links to a video where the presentation was being made. Really beautiful moment. So. You know, one of the smartest things Fred Luter ever did? What? Marrying a woman named Elizabeth. That's because you did. Yeah. Yep. There yep. you go. See? Great minds and all. All Good right. Delight. Yeah. Yep. All right. Yep. Well, yeah. Congratulations to them. Congratulations to Pastor Fred Luter. And uh, Amy, I'm going to be down in New Orleans a lot over the next year, probably. So I need to take my podcast equipment with me one time, sit down with him and have him on the show. All right. So you may have to fly to New Orleans just for that, you know, and the food. Oh, I would love. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Be a great so interview. Work something out. So. Okay. All right, one more piece of news this week, Amy. We have a presidential candidate forum in a couple of weeks at First Baptist Keller, Texas. Bart Barber, Tom Askell, and Robin Hathaway will all participate in the forum. Yeah, so this is going to be, like you said, it's a candidate forum. It'll be hosted by Joe Woodell and Tony Richmond, both of First Baptist Keller. All three of the announced candidates will be there. Um, it's always good to remember. And uh, my caveat, and I can't ever talk about this without saying it. So I'm like a broken record. The time for nominations goes all the way up until right before. So these may not be the only candidates, but they are the candidates that have been declared at this point that they that the intention is there to nominate them and they are participating in that. So those people who are kind of in the field right now, they're all going to be a part of it. It'll be at 12 p.m. Central. 
And like you said, it will be live streamed. They will not take questions from the audience or live stream viewers uh, in real time, but you can submit questions before the event. And so there's an email address for that that's in the, the Baptist Press article about this that we'll put in the show notes. So it's open to the public if you happen to be there in the Keller, Texas area and want to participate. Otherwise, uh, you can watch on the live stream. So it uh, should be a very uh, good event. Yeah. So we'll get more information about the live stream, get the link out to everybody about that. But that is, again, May the 4th, noon in Keller, Texas. BP will be on hand to uh, help cover that and give all the information for you. So uh, looking forward to that. And we'll uh, we'll follow that in just a couple of weeks. Amy, that's going to do it for our news this week. And that brings us to our interview with David Roach. This week on the podcast, we are excited to have good friend of the pod, David Roach, on with us. He is the pastor at Shiloh Baptist in Saraland, Alabama, right there in the Mobile, Alabama area. David, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me on. It's an honor. All right. Well, hey, so we having you on. We we talked about this on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. You've got a new book out. I, I think it's your your dissertation in a book form. You've cleaned it up, edited it for readability, I'm sure, and not as academic. Yes, that's right. I give much credit, by the way, to Greg Wills because he really he really helped. He was my supervisor and really helped make it a a clean uh, product in the first place. Yeah, and and that was whenever he was at Southern, and you got that's your right. PhD from Southern. It, it's called the Southern Baptist Convention and Civil Rights, 1954 to 1995. So you're only taking really a 50 year ish, 40 you know 41 years. Uh, snapshot of how Southern Baptists have dealt with civil rights. But obviously there's some background from before that, and there's some spillover into modern-day Southern Baptist discussions around race and racial reconciliation, as well as civil rights. So talk to us. Give me the genesis of, like, when did Southern Baptists— we talk about the history of Southern Baptists and founding because of slavery, wanting to send slave owners on the mission field, uh, broke away from Northern Baptists— Tell me, like, when we started getting it right on race early on. Like, what, what was that process like? There are a wide variety of answers on that, because some say the SBC has never gotten it right on race. And then some say the SBC has gotten it right on race very early. I mean, you have stories of, of people doing interesting and heroic things on race before it was cool to do that. I mean, one little, for instance, is the American Baptist Theological Seminary there in Nashville received significant SBC funding. And it was a, um, a place where the civil rights movement really helped, it started get going. They participated in the 1960 Nashville sit-ins. Uh, they had people like John Lewis graduating who were freedom riders. And all that's SBC funded, amazingly. Uh, you had Southern Seminary, having a first black seminary graduate in, the, in 1944, first graduate of any SBC seminary. But then on the other hand, uh, you have some people that even after the 1995 resolution on racial reconciliation, didn't think the SBC was serious and had major objections. Uh, so I think a good moment to key in on is the 1995 racial reconciliation resolution, because that was the most significant statement to date that the SBC as a body made in an overwhelming fashion, saying that there has been wrong and we want to write it. So walk us through how we got to 95. Now you start this book in, in 54, really, like really get into it. And, and I know in the 60s, early 60s, 1963, they, they passed Racial Reconciliation Sunday, put that on the calendar. It started in 65. 
So, I mean, we, we had about a 10-year window there before we really had something of emphasis on the, the calendar. And, you know, you're dealing with segregation and all of that in the 50s and early 60s. So what was that looking like then? And, and move us up to this, the 95 resolution. I picked 1954 as the starting date for this study because that's the year that the Supreme Court handed down its Brown versus Board of Education ruling. And they forced the hand of Southern Baptists and everybody else to respond to that ruling. In fact, at the SBC annual meeting in 1954, the Christian Life Commission brought a recommendation that the convention affirm the Brown ruling. And and it brought up significant debate and there seemed to be kind of a swell of opposition. But then J.B. Weatherspoon, who was the chair of the Christian Life Commission at the time stood up and they had a big banner across the front of the hall that said forward in Christ. And he made a plea to messengers that you can't have a banner that says forward in Christ if you're going to then say we want to go back before the Brown decision. So you had that moment that really moved things forward throughout the 1960s uh, and the 1950s. There was kind of a push and pull, give and take between some of the messengers and even leaders and pastors who were opposed to integration and then some SBC personalities that were advocating it. The Christian Life Commission, led by Foy Valentine, routinely brought forward recommendations dealing with integration. Uh, In 1964, the Civil Rights Act was working its way through Congress, and the Christian Life Commission asked the SBC to affirm that legislation. And the SBC, on a ballot vote, didn't do it. They narrowly defeated that. Uh, And they passed a substitute motion that was just kind of saying nothing but but defeating that recommendation. Uh, but then you have positive moments. Like in 1968, there was a document approved by the convention called the Statement Concerning the Crisis in Our Nation that really pushed forward the, the envelope. Um, and, and that would have been in the wake of Martin Luther King's assassination. Yes, absolutely. And major rioting in 1968, uh, the RFK assassination. As I recall, RFK was assassinated that year either as the SBC was meeting or right before. And and it really stirred messengers and they sent um, messages of sympathy. So the seminaries did the same thing. Martin Luther King was at Southern Seminary speaking in 1961. Great stride forward. But then also you had major objection and opposition to that. So you have this kind of back and forth all through history until you get to the 1980s when there seems to be a little more consistent momentum forward. And that takes us to 1995, when there's more overwhelming affirmation of a direction toward racial reconciliation. And and one of the big players in that, and he actually endorsed the book here, I see it on the back cover here, was Richard Land. And many of us know Dr. Land, it's his time at the, what was the CLC, now the ERLC. So, you know, what was his role in, obviously in 95, but also in Southern Baptist momentum toward racial reconciliation? Richard Land was one of my favorite guests that you've had on your podcast, because, and you know that he's always just so animated when talking about these issues, and, and he gives so many good details. Uh, he came into the Christian Life Commission and made it clear, even before he was elected as executive director, that if you elect me, there's going to be no change in the direction that this entity takes concerning race, because the moderates got it right. And that caused him even a little bit of pushback. He was consistent imagine. on that from the beginning. <laughs> yes. Uh, there was, right about the time that he was elected, uh, 
and a CLC trustee made some statements that seemed like they were supportive of apartheid in South Africa and were against Martin Luther King. And Dr. Land, to his credit, stood firm the whole time and made clear there's going to be no change in direction as to affirming racial reconciliation. He got it in his mind leading up to 1995 that the sesquicentennial of the SBC would be a great time to address race in, in an open way. He wasn't the only person thinking that, but he was a key person thinking that. And uh, Richard Land brought together some of the thinking that had occurred in moderate Baptist streams with the conservatives so that everybody was really on the same page by 1995 in that issue. One interesting thing in the resolution is that you hear echoes of statements that were made in the years leading up to that. Uh, the resolution echoes and almost quotes statements that Dr. Land led the ERLC, well, the CLC, uh, to make leading up to that. But there were also moderate Baptist groups like the Baptist Peace Fellowship of North America who made statements that then kind of found their way into that resolution. Um, Dr. Land was a bringer together of people on, on this issue. Take us from 95 toward today. After the resolutions passed in 95, I, I know there was a little bit of opposition back then as well. I mean, these things typically don't have unanimity uh, as much as we would want them at times. But that settled down maybe a little bit. Is that fair? Is that a fair evaluation? Um, that, that Southern yeah, Baptist I, and, and race, we, we kind of felt... Not saying we figured it out, but it, 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 it did kind of settle the things down a little bit. And then as we've gotten kind of closer to today, and we saw this in the last couple of years, it, it, it's kind of sparked again. Bring us from 95 forward. So you're right in your analysis that there was a little bit of calming. I think even that annual meeting in 1995 itself represented uh, a little bit of calming. That was the first annual meeting I ever attended. Uh, I went with my dad and I was 15 years old. And I remember the discussion of that resolution. And, uh, and there were a few people that stood up and said things like, well, I don't know that we should be saying this because many of our ancestors were faithful and they, they felt differently. But, but there was just an overwhelming show of support that day. One of my favorite memories of that resolution was I was sitting in the front row, like down on the floor of the arena. I think it was in the Georgia Dome. And there was an African-American cameraman from a news network in front of me. And as all this unfolded, he started to cry. And there was a, an elderly woman who is an SBC messenger sitting real near me. And she went up and she held this cameraman's hand and as, we, as everybody prayed. And even as a 15-year-old, I remember being touched by that. And there was just kind of a calming across the room, I thought, that uh, then was replicated in the convention. I think things stirred up a little more in the last uh, maybe decade as people started to ask increasingly, are we really living consistently with our professed commitment to racial reconciliation and justice? And that's where some of the debates uh, that you're referencing came in. And we've seen, I think probably since 2016 forward, we've had resolutions here and there over the past six years five annual meetings because 2020 was canceled. I, I would I'd venture to say that there's only been one topic that has really stirred vehement debate, and that has been the topic of race, uh, whether it be in the form of CRT, the Confederate flag, white supremacy. Uh, that was the Phoenix resolution as well. So 
it seems like that topic, even though the resolutions pass 90 to 95% in the affirmative every year, that one topic has drawn more debate than all the other resolutions combined. Why, why are we seeing that right now, you know, in the way, you know, we're 25 years out from the 95 resolution, but we're still seeming to have these, uh, these really passionate debates over this topic. My thesis in the book is that Southern Baptists have been willing to embrace racial reconciliation whenever they become convinced that the Bible demands that we do this. They've been hesitant whenever they have thought there's some other agenda at work. So when, to take an example from the past, people were suspicious of the Christian Life Commission in the 1960s and 1970s because for one, they saw that these people are advocating racial reconciliation, but they also seem to be motivated by some ideologies that we're not sure of. There was a moment in 1970 when the Christian Life Commission had an executive from Playboy magazine as a speaker at one of their seminars, and Southern Baptist just naturally blew up. Uh, it, now, I wonder was, why, David. I wonder why. <laughs> he was, uh, in fairness, this executive was there as a representative of like worldly thinking. But it was a terrible idea to invite him. And so, and so Southern Baptists saw this and they thought, what in the world? How are we really to believe the ideas coming from people that are drawing from worldly ideologies? Sometimes that was a smokescreen for prejudice. Sometimes I think it was an honest question. And today I see some of the same things going on. So, for instance, some of the resolutions you referenced. In 2019, with Resolution 9 on critical race theory and intersectionality, you saw Southern Baptists asking questions about, is this really Bible or are we being influenced by other things? Uh, by 2021, there seemed to be that follow-up resolution that focused on, yes, this is Bible, when we're, focused, we're drawing our ideas from the Bible. And I didn't hear nearly as much opposition and discussion to that. And I think it was because there wasn't that question of, are we drawing from a secular ideology or is it Bible? We said, it's Bible. Now, it might not be a fair reading of Resolution 9 to say it's not Bible, but people had that question. But they still voted for it overwhelmingly. So there may have been yeah, some people right. that had the question, but for the most part, they kind of went with it. Yeah, the opposition was in pockets, obviously, a small pocket at the annual meeting. It seemed to grow a little bit at, as there was more discussion following that. Uh, but I also think of the Confederate flag resolution a few years earlier when people were debating it. And I thought the key moment in the debate was when James Merritt stood up and he said this, and he really made it an issue of the Bible and evangelism. And then I thought, then any messengers that had a lack of clarity seemed to kind of say, okay, it's Bible, we'll go with that. Same with the alt-right resolution. Uh, there, there seemed to be, as, that, as the resolution committee initially declined to act, some question about, is this a political thing? What is the alt-right? Can we really define it? But then when clarity came that we're talking about racism, we're talking about a Bible issue, the convention came back and affirmed it. So I, I see the same pattern working over and over, even in our modern discussions. Fascinating. So, so what does that tell us moving forward? It tells us that if you want Southern Baptists to do something or believe something, you need to be able to say, thus saith the Bible. T.B. Maston made that point. He was an ethics professor at Southwestern Seminary in the mid-20th century, who is a strong advocate of equality and integration. And he said that very thing to 
to his students. He said, don't talk about social salvation. Don't talk about the social gospel because Southern Baptists don't go for that. And he even was a, a proponent of the social gospel. But he said, you have to say, thus saith the Bible and they'll follow you. I still think that's true. And rightly so. It's true in the SBC as a body that gathers each summer. And it's also true in local churches. Pastors that say, thus saith the Bible. So let's go serve and do missions with our African-American brothers and sisters down the street. We'll have success. Absolutely. All right. Well, David, thank you for being on here. Again, the book, The Southern Baptist Convention and Civil Rights, 1954 to 1995. We really appreciate you, all you do. Uh, for Southern Baptist, uh, you know, you spent years at Baptist Press. Now you're pastoring down in Sarah Land at Shiloh Baptist. Appreciate all you do. David, thank you for joining us today. We'll see you soon. Thank you, Jonathan. That's going to do it for the news this week and bring us to my favorite part of the week this week in SBC history. Amy, blow our minds. All right. I want to go to the headline story from April 22nd, 1965, about an incoming student at... New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. So this is like the New Orleans episode. It was an interesting human interest story. And I tried to look this guy up and I really couldn't find anything about him. But um, it said, uh, here's, here's the lead. It said, for a foreign mission career, Roy Wilton Hurst could hardly be more practically prepared. He can fly a plane, make mud bricks, trap a mountain lion, and wrestle alligators. So this is this 26-year-old guy had spent five years in Africa and South America and then decided to go to seminary. So basically he had gone, he had always loved wild animals. He, he said that uh, he lived in Meridian, Mississippi. He had books about wild animals. He collected reptiles, insects, said he used to climb out of his bedroom window before anyone else was up and go hunting for small animals sometimes carrying my gun, mostly without it. Then he went and got a degree in zoology. And uh, it said that he had an interview with Arthur Jones, wild animal collector and television producer in Slidell, Louisiana. And he ends up leaving and going to Africa. So he goes to Africa and it says he came face to face with most of the jungle animals he had read about in the past. Sometimes it was recorded on video. So he worked with this guy, Arthur Jones said he had starred in more than 70 television shows. Wild Cargo and Capture was another one. I don't know what they are, but this they were like syndicated TV series. He also learned how to fly a plane and wrestle alligators. So he it said he started helping men move alligators they had captured from one cage to another. And then it went on from there to tackling them in front of an audience. It said he once confronted five six foot alligators 300 times within two weeks while performing at the Chicago amphitheater. But he also was feeling a call to ministry. So he decided, you know, to, he started exploring missions. He had connected with a, a group of missionaries in the Congo. And so they invited him to go help start an aviation agricultural work. So he went there. So he'd been wrestling alligators. Doing, and remember this guy's only 26 when this is written. Uh, so then he goes to Brazil, lives in a lean-to, sleeps on the ground, taught school, was foreman for a brick-making crew. They turned out 80,000 mud bricks in three months. And then he decided to go to New Orleans Seminary because he wanted to, wanted to get an education. It said, um, used to undertaking causes, Roy Hurst finds sitting in classes all day a little confining. Well, I guess so. 
But he said, he said, while the, the ending was while tied to the campus, however, he hopes to do a little flying, weightlifting and a lot of studying for the time when he will face lost multitudes and maybe alligators again. So I actually tried to do some digging, see if I could find anything else about him, but I didn't, I, I couldn't locate anything, but it was just a pretty incredible story. And so I, uh, I, I just wanted to mention it, a great human interest story. Alligator wrestler goes to seminary this week in SBC history. Well, that's fascinating, Amy. And, um, a couple of thoughts on that. You know what they say about people like that to go to seminary. They got real leadership potential. <laughs> and then also, also, this is not they to be do confused. Indeed. Not to be confused with Roy Hayhurst. This Correct. is Roy Hurst. Even though that's I, right. I, I don't know. I don't know if but Roy would want to get is in there it? with uh, with an maybe. alligator. Yeah, he probably wouldn't. And this is someone <laughs> who was twenty six in nineteen sixty five. So I don't think Roy's Roy not ninety. Was- or whatever it he is. Wasn't I don't even know what that is. born in 1939. Yeah. No, Roy's not that old. <laughs> but, not even close. Yeah. But so. uh, still, it would be great to think about him wrestling alligators out there. Roy so. Hayhurst over Guidestone, let us know what you think about the potential of uh, wrestling 300 alligators in a five day span <laughs> in, or whatever it is. Five days. At the Chicago this is Amphitheater. This just crazy. This is just Holy crazy. Smokes. So, anyway, I, but I'm, I would be fascinated to learn. Yeah, maybe they should find out something about him. Maybe they got something about him at New Orleans. I'll do some asking around. Okay. Yeah, we know people there. Okay. All right. So, yes, the New Orleans episode. All right. That's going to bring us to our resources of the week. Amy, I'm going to start this week because I'm excited about mine. I don't know you're excited about yours every week, too, but I'm excited about mine because we've got a return engagement next week on the podcast. Charles Billingsley has a new album out, and it is spectacular. I am pumped about this. Yes. This is this is really exciting because it's some of my favorite kind of music. Yes. So The Shadow of Your Smile. That's yes. right. It's This is your resource. Yes. Go ahead and say it. The Shadow of Your Smile is the resource of the week for me. It's the new album from Charles Billingsley. Releases next month. And like I said, we've got him coming on the podcast next week. So we texted with him last night and got it all squared away and... We're excited about having Charles on the podcast next week. So that's going to be really cool. And I know Amy's excited because Amy's a bigger fan than I am. But new song, new song, baby. Back in the 90s. Yes. Yes. This album, like, it's just like Charles is like, you know what? I like these songs. I want to sing these songs and watch me sing them. And they are spectacular. It's like American standards. Yeah. So like Tony Bennett. It's right. You know, Charles, Charles Billingsley is a Southern Baptist Tony Bennett or something like that. He, I don't know if you would like that or not. That's great. We'll say that in the interview. We'll see yeah. how he reacts. Do you so. you consider yourself the Southern Baptist Tony Bennett? We'll ask him that next yeah. week. So yeah. yeah, don't miss the podcast next week. Charles Billingsley will join us next week. I wonder if David Roach can sing like this. You know, no. Well, too too bad that you didn't. Get I should ask asked him, him that. I should ask so, him. All right, yeah. Amy, your resource of the week is uh, Baptist Twenty One podcast. They just dropped their uh, one hundred. It's episode one hundred three, and uh, it is an interview with me. So here's the deal. I never like to get, I never like to push my own stuff too much in these resources of the week, but I did a, an episode with them talking about SBC annual meeting locations, specifically about California. So I talked a lot about kind of the history 
history of uh, how we went to the West and something kind of matches up with an article I did in SEC Life. And then a little bit about what goes into selecting annual meeting locations, things like that. So it was a great conversation. And um, I just wanted to throw that in there because I think that's good. It matches up with what we like to do here on the podcast, Good Supplement. So uh, folks can head on over there and hear my conversation with Nate Aiken. All right. Sounds good. All right. Well, that's our resources of the week. And again, thank you to David Roach for hanging out with us on the podcast this week. And yeah, like we said, big news week from the city of New Orleans and uh, looking forward to being there next year for the SBC annual meeting. Amy, I'll see you next week. See you next week. See you next week.